0: Welcome to episode 1564 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: Doing okay. I want to ask you your opinion about this recipe for a meal that I read in a tweet from our recent guest, Bradford William Davis, who was tweeting about something James Paxton said. You've been a, a supporter of James Paxton. You've enjoyed James Paxton's pitching in the past, so what do you make of this? Bradford tweeted, on a call with James Paxton, he said the biggest sacrifice since being back in New York is not being able to try new restaurants. So he's cooking more. His best home dish is a keto chili. Oh God, <laughs> with no beans and a pound of bacon.
0: <laughs> what is all their stuff in the chili?
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's it's just it's just bacon.
0: Well, what <laughs> like, is that? What is this? so is this just is it just bacon soup? It's just I... <laughs> frothy bacon? That's what it
1: sounds like. It <laughs> seems a... extremely unappetizing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was <are> tweet about <laughs> chili and the wets. Which is, sounds worse now that I say it out loud. It sounds like I'm referring to a different thing and I'm not. Um I I don't know I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't I don't really
1: want to know what it means. <laughs>
0: I don't under first of all do people put bacon in chili?
1: I don't think so. I I don't usually get involved in the regional chili debates. Oh gosh, but... no!
0: Better to stay away from that because it is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I um, know, my life's but folly. But-
1: but this one I think maybe we can all universally condemn. <laughs> I don't I wonder if this is maple bacon because he's big maple and and that's the nickname or I I just it does sound like just bacon soup which <laughs> sounds really gross. I'm not really a bacon guy under any circumstances but in chili I I don't know that just seems wrong. No beans?
0: I prefer bacon to be very crispy when I have bacon. I'm not a huge bacon person either. I enjoy it every now and again but i'm not you know like bacon kind of they're they're bacon people there are people who are like all about bacon they're like yeah Yeah. Yeah, like he wanted all the the eggs and bacon right all Mm -hmm. of it so that so i prefer crispy bacon when i have it and so the idea of it being in some kind of liquid seems to undermine my preferred bacon um preparation as it were but i am mostly very confused we we might have to have bradford back on the show just to explain the bacon i need yeah. to know more i think i have to know more about this bacon
1: hopefully he has some follow-ups about that <laughs> anyway yeah. that's james paxton's chili recipe i can't say i want the details but <laughs> i
0: i like chili yeah. um i vote yes to to chili but nice. i remain I am flummoxed, Ben. I I am
1: with you there. So we have a couple team previews lined up for you all today. We will be talking about the Mariners later in this episode with Ryan Divish, and shortly we will be discussing the dreaded Houston Astros with Chandler Rome of the Houston Chronicle, both good lengthy conversations. Before we get to those, I just wanted to say, A, we've got some news. We had an actual free agent signing a a notable transaction. Been quite a while since we had one of those to talk about, but Yasiel Puig has a team now. So that's fun and exciting. He had been linked to other teams the Orioles the Marlins the Giants at various times even the KBO possibly but he ended up going to Atlanta it's good to have him somewhere I want Yasiel Puig to be part of baseball so that's good and I guess I'm happy that he's on a pretty good team and could possibly get playoff appearances and could be a pretty fun team I guess he won't Literally be in an outfield all that often with Ronald Acuna and Marcel Azuna because Ender and is out there. And so maybe Puig will be DHing sometimes. Maybe he'll be playing a corner sometimes. Nick Marquigas opted out of the season, which maybe opened up this roster spot for him. But. Yeah. Happy that he landed somewhere, finally.
0: Yeah. Baseball without Puig feels strange. I will be interested to see what personal COVID protocols he has for his bat licking. I think (laughs) if he's licking his own bat and it's just his own bat and his own bat isn't touching other stuff, that's totally acceptable. That's fine. You just have a good have a good time there um, mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see what if anything this might mean for um, the likelihood that say we see Christian Pache this year so that's yeah. a, a relevant thing to keep an eye on but yes it it seems it seems good to have baseball with Puig if we are going to have baseball at all. Um, And it is. I think it'll be great fun to have him on a team that is already just terrific fun to watch. Mm -hmm. And I pray for all of us if Smoltz calls playoff game with that (laughs) outfield because he he might get kind of, he might get fussy, Ben. Mm -hmm. There might be an, an instinct for fussiness. We'll have to keep an eye on that too keep an eye out.
1: Yeah, I don't know what to expect out of Puig at this point because he's coming off a season when he was essentially a league average hitter on the whole and he's projected for not much better than that but I guess you would expect more out of him than you would have expected probably out of a 36-year-old Markekis and he's still not even 30 yet and it hasn't been that long since he was uh, at least an above average player so I will be curious to see what they get out of him.
0: Yeah, we have him our death chart projections for him which I'll remind our listeners, blend Steamer and Zips into one thing. Have him forecast for a 107 WRC plus and a little under a half win in the shortened season. Uh, Steamer's a little higher on his bat than Zips appears to be. Dan's going to be writing about this for Fangraphs for tomorrow, so you'll get to hear more from him on the prognostication side. But yeah, I, I think it's Easy to say. This is an upgrade over Marquez. Sorry, Nick Marquez. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm a bit surprised. They I don't know what team I expected to sign Puig, but I don't think I thought it would be the Braves. But mm-hmm. that might be because the first thought that came into my mind when I saw this come across the transom was, oh, God, this means I have to have people change things in the positional power rankings. <laughs> so I might be a touch distracted by my work reality right now, even though this is also part of my work reality. So uh, that's that's a possibility also. Yeah, yeah.
1: Positional power rankings on the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So I did want to say that I have kind of enjoyed some of the sights of the intra games. Despite the circumstances, there's been a lot of fun stuff happening. I mean, there's been a lot of not-so-fun stuff happening, too. Sure. and We'll get into that with Chandler when we talk about the Astros, because all sorts of things have gone wrong with them, and the Royals had Cam Gallagher test positive, and it's just totally unclear what will happen if players who are on the team and appearing in games test positive, and how that will jeopardize future games. A yeah. role as Chapman tested positive too. So there's a whole lot of uncertainty about that right now, but some of the oddness and whimsy that we've seen in these interest squad games, because teams are playing themselves and it's sort of teammate on teammate and so they're not taking it super seriously and we've seen things like Francisco Lindor doing somersaults as he crosses home plate <laughs> after a home run. We saw Ioannis Cespedes I think just hit a home run turn around and go right back to the dugout <laughs> which is fun. <laughs> we saw Luis Robert hit a home run and fall down in the same smooth motion <laughs> which is <was laughs> also fun and I forget who it was but I've seen clips of like players hitting home runs and then taunting their teammate pitchers just because you know that's the atmosphere yeah. there's no one there really it's just the the team left to its own devices and that's been kind of interesting and we've also seen like the Dodgers clubhouse attendant Chico Herrera is playing in games and robbing guys and making web gems and throwing lasers and Bryce Harper playing third base in a game which is something that he had petitioned Joe Girardi to do and he got to do it because you know no stakes in in these games so i've kind of enjoyed that it's like even less formal than spring training games and so teams are just sort of messing around
0: yeah you know it still feels weird given our moment and there are times when the weirdness intrudes in a way that is less fun but i gotta say i was i had the mariners intrasquad game on uh, yesterday evening i had the rebroadcast on youtube on just in the background while i was editing positional power rankings and the mariners have opted to pipe in crowd sound and i'm going to have to i think make one of the stranger media requests of the year and talk to the soundboard guy because <laughs> ben it's not normal baseball crowd noise it what doesn't it? sound i don't know i don't know ben but i gotta i gotta know i need to know
1: in what way does it sound admirable? it
0: sounds inside first of all huh. it it sounds it sounds too loud i have video on my phone which i should have thought to send to you before we recorded this maybe i can we'll just take a, a tiny pause i'm gonna send this to you in chat right now and uh once it sends you can listen to it i don't know i don't know what it is. It's not quite normal, and it does sound a bit distorted in this video, which is now taking a good long minute to send to you, but while while that gets to your ears, it has felt nice to have that background sound in the evening, and I don't think that that makes any of the stuff that we're going to talk about specifically with the Astros any less pressing or makes me feel less conflicted about potentially taking testing resources from just normal folks, but also this part does feel kind of nice and it's going to be... You know we're gonna have to grapple with yeah. those contradictory feelings as this whole uh, weird season proceeds. But it was nice. It was nice to have uh, the the back crack. You know, it was mm-hmm. nice to be sitting there and I'm doing third base and I'm checking a thing and then I heard the sound and I looked up and the the fake fans celebrated as Jared <laughs> Kelnick hit a home run and I thought yeah. that's pretty cool because that I I'm interested in that so that was nice.
1: I just listened and yeah you're right it, I don't know well, what it is it's... it sounds like artificial crowd noise which it is but, yeah, but it no, sounds very blatant but not, blatant. A, baseball crowd, but not yeah. a
0: baseball crowd so I'm gonna have to bother the Seattle Mariners is a very important question I think I think yeah. I have to bother them
1: yeah I'd be interested in the answer so mm-hmm. yeah and another thing that we've seen is the catcher mask cam like GoPros which yes. I've really enjoyed that and I was kind of wondering why we don't see that more often in games. Cause we have seen that in real broadcasts of, of major league games that counts. And I was doing a little research on that. And so in July 1997, Fox introduced catcher cam. So you had the, the camera on the catcher's mask. So that's a long time ago. And that was a, a staple on Fox's baseball broadcast for a while. And then 2002. ESPN debuted its mask cam, I think, or at least they were using it at that point. And then 2004 TBS had their catcher cam extra motion. I think it was called. So, Those things existed, but they're not regular presences now. I know that the College World Series broadcasts have had them, I think, but I emailed someone who has worked in production on one of those networks and gave me some background on that and and what it was like to try to get players to do that. And apparently, A, there's a difference between wearing a GoPro and wearing a, a broadcast quality camera. So... The GoPro records on this little teeny mini SD card and has a little battery and it doesn't need to transmit a live signal through the air. And so the actual cameras that are used in games have a a transmitter and a battery, which has to be bigger because of the transmitter. So it's a little more cumbersome and bulky. But when they did get catchers to use these things... They just kind of had to go up to the catcher and say, hey, will you wear this each week? Like if there is a Sunday night baseball game on ESPN or something, they would just go up to a catcher and say, would you mind wearing this? and Apparently, when Javi Lopez wore one, he asked them to paint it, so they had to paint it and were worried that he would faint from the paint fumes, but it, it was okay. Weird. And there was no like official process where MLB would get guys to do this, so it was just kind of up to the network to try to sell the players on it. And then at a certain point, apparently in 2001, ESPN got the Empire Tom Hallwell to wear it on his mask, and evidently that was better because it was more stable, because the umpire is not moving around as much. And also, it's farther back. So you could see home plate, and you could see the batter's feet. And so that was just preferable. Plus, they wear it for the whole game, not just for half the game, because they're back there for every pitch. And evidently, that was just something that the umpires, you know, they wore it once, and it seemed like maybe they would wear it more often. But then, The umpires union or association sort of nixed that because they felt and maybe still feel that they should be compensated in some way for that, which is understandable, I guess. But that kind of put the kibosh on the umpire cam, unfortunately, for spectators of baseball. So. That seems to be the story. That's why it it hasn't really happened and why even players haven't really worn it all that much. But that is something that I think the Players Association and the League were talking about at various points during the negotiations leading up to the season was the possibility of having mics or cameras on players and games. And it does seem like the future. So Mm -hmm. hopefully we will get more of that. But I've been enjoying this GoPro footage in the meantime.
0: Yeah, it really just underscores how incredible it is that anyone ever gets a hit, ever, yeah, yeah. ever. <laughs> that there's even been one in the history of baseball that it the hasn't pitches just been. are really been- fast. It's so fast. <laughs> yes. You just sit there and I hope that that, View is one that we get to know better because it will not persuade the vast majority, but there will be a couple of folks who, you know, grumble about wanting to play the game for free that see that. And then they're like, oh, no, I take it back. I would be very bad at this. Mm-hmm. So um I, I it's great. I like it very much. Uh, yeah. I think that we should have it oh, often as an option because it just really does make you appreciate how... <laughs> How great a small miracle every hit is. It's yeah. just a miracle. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs>
1: I wouldn't want to watch every pitch that way. No, but, no. But just to have it for replays even, yeah. just the occasional pitch, I, I think would be great. And yeah. evidently the the full model that they use in broadcasts weighs like 11 ounces, which sounds fairly manageable. I, yeah. I guess on your head, that's kind of heavy on top of the other mask that you're wearing, but still seems doable. So I hope yeah. that they get back to that at some point and- Speaking of umpires, 11 of them opted out, it sounds like. So that's going to be odd, too, in that that's a pretty significant percentage of all the umpires. I, I think they're something like 90-ish umpires listed on the umpire rosters page, so 11 of them, that's a, a big chunk, and you know, we've seen a few more players opt out, like Jordan Hicks, but 11 umpires is pretty significant, and I don't know if they'll be able to compensate with the umpires that they have because fewer games and fewer trips, or whether they'll promote some minor league umps who are maybe not quite as accurate, or I don't know, but at some point there was speculation that maybe... This would just hasten robot umps that we would not have any human umps back there just for social distancing reasons, but that hasn't happened. But obviously a lot of umpires are older than professional athlete age, and so perhaps it stands to reason that they would be a little more vulnerable or, or consider themselves more at risk
0: yeah it seems to make good sense, and like you said, especially if you're the home plate ump, it's just much more difficult to effectively socially distance, so mm-hmm. you know you spend your evening putting your hand on a stranger's shoulder and back, yeah. which yeah. is another weird thing about work <laughs> for baseball guys, I guess, but yeah it's it's not surprising, but it will be interesting to see the effect that it has. I think that when they were negotiating between the union and the league about how they were going to sort of deal with the possibility of opt-outs, a, a not small percentage of their total 2020 salaries has basically already been paid. So mm-hmm. I'm, I think that they were in a financial spot, I, I hope that this is right, where that decision might have been even an easier one if, if guys perceived that they were at risk. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know. We continue to support people doing what they need to to stay healthy
1: yep well, we know joe west isn't worried
0: <laughs> imagine doing a thing that rec- inspired your own union to say oh no, <laughs> no we're not we're not on that with him
1: yeah We've also seen some players suggest that they may wear masks in games, which uh, we'll talk to Chandler about that. Oled Diaz on the Astros is one of those players and also Clint Frazier with the Yankees and maybe Tyler Wade, maybe some others. But even when we talked to Jacob last week about the 1919 flu mask game, I wasn't sure whether we would actually see that in big league games this year. But sounds like we probably will with at least a few guys.
0: Yeah, I think that the ability of baseball players to help inspire the public to make good personal decisions is not sufficient justification for hosting a baseball season. Mm -hmm. But I am pleased that there are players who not only are taking those precautions for the sake of their teammates, but seem to uh, have a, a good sense of the role they can play in inspiring people in their market to think about, hey, I should wear a mask. I need to remember to put that by the door. This is important, like that baseball player I like said to do it so i will too um so it's good to see them using their platform but it'll be interesting to hear from them about what it's like to actually play in one because when we talked to jacob about the pandemic game you know he kind of bemoaned that we didn't have more first person accounts of what it was like to actually play a game in Mm -hmm. one of those sounds like we're about to find out
1: yeah and last thing i wanted to mention is another of bradford's tweets he was talking to aaron boone And he tweeted, Aaron Boone says the Yankees might break out a five-man infield when Zach Britton and his turbo sinker is on the bump. He called it the Britton package and said that he particularly likes it when Hicks is available, Aaron Hicks, to cover ground in the outfield. So that's pretty exciting because that's something that Sam and I tried with the Stompers five years ago, and we've wanted teams to try that. And, of course, we have seen them try it in emergency walk-off situations where if a ball gets out of the infield, then you lose the game anyway. But that doesn't really count or that's not quite what we were thinking about. We wanted someone to do this just because, you know, combination of pitcher with high ground ball rate, batter with high ground ball rate, maybe certain strengths or weaknesses of the infield and outfield and evidently with Zach Britton who gets a ton of grounders and Aaron Hicks who covers ground in the outfield Yankees might actually try that not in an emergency situation but just as a matter of course with Zach Britton this season so that's something potentially to look forward to
0: very cool very very cool maybe James Paxton's chili is actually cake
1: <laughs> It could be maybe you I cut
0: it open and it's cake
1: yeah. Is it a hot dog or is it a sandwich?
0: I don't like the cake. I don't like the cake thing. I don't <laughs> think we need to be confused about whether reality is real. It's already hard enough to tell in 2020. Just <laughs> don't ruin cake. We have so little left. <laughs> it's
1: pleasing to look at that footage, though, and watch people cut the, the cake that doesn't look like cake. I yeah, enjoyed that. Yeah.
0: I, I have not been. I haven't liked <laughs> it at all. I uh-huh. want to know if it's cake. Yeah, without having to guess or cut it open. I don't yeah. like these cake tacos and cake lobsters and cake, <laughs> cake eggplants.
1: Yeah, I saw Emily Nussbaum tweet something about how it really got in her head, and suddenly she was wondering if everything's cake. Is everything cake? Is she cake? And are people cake? Yeah, <laughs> it kind of gets. Yeah, it kind of gets ingrained.
0: Yeah, are are we going to learn that the players are cake? <laughs> is the ball made of cake? What does a cake ball do? How far does that go? I don't know. Now I have to think about it. I don't like it.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably a lot less far, actually, than the real one, I would Yeah, think. you would
0: think so. Yeah. Mm, certainly messier.
1: All right. So we will take a quick break from talking about chili and cake, and we will be back with Chandler Room to preview the Houston Astros season.
0: My brain is just full of so many words, and these are the only ones that would come out. <laughs> <laughs> The words just came when I opened my mouth this the words just came when I opened my mouth The words just came, guess it came from the south And the words just came when I opened my mouth They
1: said, Whoa. All right. It is time to talk about the Astros now. We are joined by Chandler Rome, who covers the team for the Houston Chronicle and is taking a brief break between filing stories about the latest testing snafus in summer camp to talk to us. Hey, Chandler. Hi, guys. How are you? doing okay so we've started most of these segments by asking about conditions in camp and most of the people we've talked to so far have said oh things are going about as well as you could expect and i don't think that's what you're going to tell us so it seems like the Astros have had just about everything that could go wrong go wrong whether it's testing delays canceled workouts players or coaches not being present for workouts players being absent from camp altogether what is going on in Astros Land?
2: How much time do you have?
1: <laughs> <laughs> as much as you
2: need. Well, it, it has not been a, it has not been a flying start to the COVID nineteen season for the Astros. Um they've had to cancel two workouts totally one because of a delay in testing they did it on the same day that the nationals and the cardinals had to cancel their workouts after the fourth of july weekend and then they also canceled one last week after a staff member was quote potentially exposed to a COVID 19 individual outside of the organization mm-hmm. the next day we returned to camp and found that there were no major league pitchers in camp their pitchy coach brent strom was not there and neither was bullpen coach josh miller we come to find out that the staff member who was potentially exposed worked or congregated in the visiting clubhouse where the pitchers are dressing and congregating because of the social distancing guidelines the position players are on the home side and the pitchers are on the visiting side so because of that they all had to be retested and they were all held out as a precautionary measure so the Pitchers missed two days completely, and then when you add the the other day of the total workouts being canceled, they have missed three total workouts. And just today, George Springer uh, was absent from the Astros workout because his COVID nineteen test did not arrive in time for him to participate. Uh, two other players were also absent due to the same worry, but manager Dusty Baker could not identify them. As far as I saw, every other established position player was in attendance, so perhaps it was someone that is training with the alternate site, perhaps it was someone that just doesn't pop off the screen. But certainly is concerning and justin verlander and lance mccullers today were both very candid and very blunt that this needs to be fixed Um, both of them brought up a pretty salient point Uh, justin verlander asked what if i have to start a game and i wake up one morning and they text me saying your COVID results are not in you cannot start right Um, i don't think justin verlander would be very happy to hear that the strange thing and the most concerning thing is that no one seems to know what is going to happen in the regular season If this occurs, Lance McCullers, who is the Astros MLBPA player rep, he said he does not know. James Click, the general manager, Dusty Baker, the manager, both said they do not know. And Justin Verlander today said he does not know. So there is a lot of unknown going on in the Astros, in the Astros world that extends far beyond the COVID testing. So it is, it's basically become a job of when you get to Minute Maid Park, you make sure everyone is there, you take role every day, and the ones that are not there usually have a great story as to why they're not.
1: Yeah, you basically answered my next question or at least told us that there is no answer to my next question, which is what happens if this happens two weeks from now. And I've, I've seen that Dusty Baker has gotten pretty creative about talking about the absences of certain players, describing certain players as ailing, quote unquote, or trying to explain why certain players are not in camp without saying exactly why they're not in camp, understandably, of course. But there are some players like Jordan Alvarez or Jose Urquidy who are not there, right, or or have not been there for long stretches?
2: Jordan Alvarez and Jose Urquidy are not with the team, and they are two important players. Jordan Alvarez is the reigning American League Rookie of the Year who bashed a lot of baseballs in a very short sample size and kind of took over the world there for a slight month or two. And then Jose Urquidy um, introduced himself in Game 4 of the World Series, and was gonna be a guy that the Astros counted on to kind of be a stabilizing force behind Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke, and Lance McCullers because the back end of this rotation, even with Jose Urquidy is really unsettled, but neither man is with the club right now. Dusty Baker uh, has stuck to the line of, they have a condition that is preventing them from reporting to the field. Any follow-up questions about that are answered with the same quote. Um, Mm -hmm. Both were placed on the injured list two days ago with no explanation given. I'm not in the, I'm not, I don't enjoy speculating about people's medical conditions and I won't do that here, but Mm -hmm. it is, I don't want to say it's safe to say, but there's certainly, if you read between the lines, there, there there's certainly some validity to assuming that perhaps they are on the COVID-19 injured list. And that doesn't mean that they have the virus. That could just mean they've been exposed or they've, come into contact with someone that is positive. But James Click was asked yesterday if they'll be ready for opening day, and he said hopefully so, but he did not sound very hopeful when he said hopefully so. So the Astros have to proceed as if they're not going to have their reigning rookie of the year and their presumptive fourth starter when they open the season against Seattle.
0: You've mentioned how that's been taxing for them. I'm curious if over the course of the last week and a half, have you noticed a change in the way that players have talked about or potentially considered whether they will remain with the team for the duration of the season? Has this shaken the confidence of them in the in the league's testing procedure in a way that you think is irreparable, or do you think that they'll be able to smooth out the challenges they've had and then hopefully get going come opening day?
2: I think there are two groups. Um, I think there's a group that includes Justin Verlander, Lance McCullers, Jose Altuve. That group, they understand that they are doing all they can at the field. They are, I, From my vantage point and from how I see everything going on, the Astros are doing about as good a job as you can ask with the social distancing, with wearing their PPE. They spit every now and then, they have to catch themselves high-fiving, but I think every club around baseball is having those issues right now, breaking those habits. Sure. Those guys say, you know, we understand that this is going to be difficult. We, we empathize with what MLB is trying to do, and we understood that there were going to be kinks. But as Justin Verlander and Lance McCullough said today, there is no time anymore for like the kinks to get worked out. Like, they're going to open the season in 10 days, and they can't have these testing delays going on. Then there's another group um, that includes Joe Smith, who is not with the team currently. He has not reported to camp out of what Dusty Baker and James Click have, ter- have termed safety concerns for his family. James Click was asked yesterday if Joe Smith would opt out of the season, and he said certainly that's a possibility, but they just want to keep the focus on doing whatever they can to facilitate Joe's needs and and help his family feel as safe as possible and then Martin Maldonado is kind of in the middle I talked to Martin Maldonado for a story last week his wife is a cancer survivor she had kidney cancer in 2014 and has now uh, recovered thankfully and she's been fine since according to Martin but Martin Maldonado was really shaken um, by the first delay in COVID results uh, after the 4th of July weekend. He told me, I asked him what happened when they went in on that Sunday, July 5th, when they were supposed to get tested. And he said, they told me we're not testing because FedEx doesn't work on the 4th of July. And for someone that is a that lives with a cancer survivor who is a high, who is classified as a high risk individual, I, I cannot imagine the mental anguish that put on him. And he yeah. even said, he even said that I've had mentally. This was only three days into workouts, but he said in these three days, my my emotions and my mental state have gone just so many different ways when I'm at the field. And I think that that extends to a lot of people because the one thing that the Astros keep saying when when you bring up these testing delays is they just want peace of mind. They want to go into the ballpark and know they're negative to the point where they can, if you know what, if you happen to get less than six feet away from your teammate, you don't have to worry about possibly spreading the virus. You can be safe and know that everyone in there is negative and aware if you adhere to the social distancing and if you adhere to all the protocols, you can be safe and you can give yourself peace of mind that you're not gonna spread the virus. And the fact that for a lot of summer camp, none of these guys have had that peace of mind. They have not had the peace of mind to go in and know they are negative and know that perhaps and know that maybe one of their teammates is not negative, they don't have to worry about spreading that to their families and Martin Maldonado going home to a high-risk spouse. So certainly there are a lot of different emotions and guys running the gamut right now, but um, they are trying to put on as positive a face as possible and exuding optimism because they know they have a very good club and they know that if this team can stay healthy and if they know that this team can avoid the coronavirus, they should have a pretty good chance at uh, contending.
1: And Aledmus Diaz has said that he is thinking about wearing or intending to wear his mask in games, right? Is that a definite thing, and do you know whether any other Astros are planning on joining him in that? Aledmus said
2: that he plans on trying it, and he said mm-hmm. he, want, he he said he did not want it to impact the way he does his job and playing at a high level, but he has been one of the guys that wears them everywhere. He, he's worn them on the field while they take infield, while he's shagging fly balls. There have been other guys that have worn masks. Alex Bregman has worn a mask while he's taking infield. Yuli Guriel during the Astros' first inter-squad game wore a mask every time a runner reached first base and he had to hold him on. But Alex Bregman has said he's not going to wear one in a game. Josh Reddick has worn one a couple of times. Josh Reddick has uh, twin boys that are coming up on it. They're about six or seven months old So he's he's worn a mask when he's shagging balls in the outfield But He's also said he probably won't wear one in the game But every one of them when they've been asked if they wear one they said I don't think I will But if it was mandatory, I'd be fully on board with wearing a mask on the field So perhaps I, it may be a little late to amend 113 page health and safety protocols But maybe Major League Baseball could hop on that and uh, get uh, get some more masks on the field
0: The state of affairs related to the coronavirus has obviously taken a lot of our attention, but the Astros were in sort of a strange spot to start the season, I think is a fair way of describing it, perhaps an overly neutral way of describing it. I don't think that we need to rehash the details of the banging scheme or any of MLB's penalties, but before we were grappling with how to play a season at all. How was this team starting to coalesce around new leadership? What were some of the changes that you noticed immediately from both a new manager and a new general manager?
2: So it's difficult to tell because, you know, James Click got this job two weeks before spring training. Um, He hasn't had time to come in and, and really, you know, set up a system or anything. You know, the Astros just, they had the draft in June and it was run by all guys that ran the draft under Jeff Luno. And he's, not fired many people obviously the situation right now firing someone would be a little bit uh, would be a little bit unkempt and be a little bit distasteful but he he's kept the same regime currently that that Jeff Luno had here and his relationship with Dusty Baker is they, they certainly come off as an odd couple you would think James Click being the Yale graduate the from the uh, analytically forward-thinking Tampa Bay Rays and Dusty Baker being the um, quintessential baseball lifer, old, uh, older, wiser, sager guy, but they seem to have, they seem to coexist really well. Both of them enjoy wine, and that is kind of the the crux of a lot of their conversations. But Dusty always says he learns a lot from James Click every time Click tells him something, and vice versa. It seems like they're feeding off of each other, and I really do think James Click has leaned on Dusty Baker during the stoppage because Dusty Baker played through at least two work stoppages in the 80s sure. and he managed uh, obviously in 94 so he, he is used to he's used to some of these work stoppages and what's going on so they're helping each other in that route but i don't think we'll really see the new astros if you will like the new regime until maybe whenever this offseason arrives and james click has more time to maybe take his take a deep breath settle down a little bit and reassess and assess what he has here
0: well, this question might be premature then, given that answer, but you noted that the Rays are an analytically inclined organization, but they're also one that has relied heavily on scouting, has a robust scouting organization, um, and has been able to sort of make their way in a competitive East division despite small payrolls in part because of that. Do you have a sense of how the Astros might recenter scouting in the organization now that he's here, or do you think that they'll sort of hew toward the precedent that was set by Lunao and Company when they reduced their scouting size?
2: I think it's a little. I think it's a little early to tell because, like I said, um, James Click spent this entire three-month shutdown before the agreement was reached. He spent it learning his staff because, I kid you not, within the week he was introduced on the dais. He's in West Palm Beach fielding questions about a sign stealing scheme that he wasn't involved in. So he barely had time to breathe when he got this job. So when he had this shutdown, it was really a time for him to just get on Zoom and get to know as many of the guys around him as possible. I'm not sure if he settled in on the scouts versus stats debate. Um, that was a question when he was introduced at his news conference and predictably he was a little bit reticent to commit one way or the other, but. I think the astros certainly have shown that they were successful um without the abundance of scouts that that other teams maybe had but i don't think james has reached a decision yet on where he wants to fall in the scouts versus stats debate and i don't think i i think i remember from his introductory press conference he didn't even want to consider it a debate i think he wants a little bit of both i think he wants to blend them as much as possible but i think that's the goal for almost every team but i do think the one thing that james click is going to bring to the astros that maybe has been absent um, for the last five six or seven years is some form of humanity he wants to um, treat people the right way he wants to build an employee first culture. And that's something that he cultivated from the raise. And that's something when you talk to people in the Astros organization, when you talk to people about why James Click is the right guy for this job, it's because of that. Because he's able to foster some sort of humanity and some, and give people a sense of pride and give people, you know, a a reason to come to work in the morning and feel valued.
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask about that because so much of the focus in the aftermath of the Seinstein scandal was about the Astros culture and not just the team itself, but the larger team culture that may have helped enable that cheating. And a lot of that focused on the baseball operations staff, but of course there was also the media relations staff that had kind of been in hot water before, but really just made a mess of every step of the response to that scandal. It was bad enough just what happened, but the way that they responded to it and handled it and made public statements after the fact was in some ways even more befuddling. So was that as simple as saying, okay, no more Taubman, no more Luno? Or is the fact that a lot of the people who were there are still there? I mean, can you change a culture without completely cleaning house? That's
2: going to be the question that James Click has to confront. And I think Jim Crane, that was the question Jim Jim Crane Crane, had to confront right after the sign stealing scandal broke and right after he levied the punishments. And that was a question that he was asked multiple times after the sign stealing scandal happened was, um, do you felt like you, do you feel like you've done enough? Do you feel like that this is enough? And every time he always comes back with, I don't think anyone else has ever fired their manager and general manager at once. I think we did enough house cleaning. So if you were to talk to Jim Crane, Jim Crane thinks enough has been done, I believe. I think he knows that he rooted out, or, or Major League Baseball helped him root out perhaps the crux of what was going on and the crux of what enabled this culture to happen. Brandon Tobin, Jeff Luno, not a j Hinch, perhaps in the culture part of it, I think a j Hinch is as respected a guy in the game as you'll find. I just think it was more of with him. it was more of not being able to say not being able to put a foot down and put a stop to anything. but James Click's got to confront the same question that Jim Crane did, and he's got a little bit more time to to answer it, just given that the season's going on and um when the off season rolls around, it'll be one of the more fascinating things to watch as to how. James wants to construct his front office and whether that includes everyone that's still here. He's got Pete Patilla as his lone assistant general manager. Pete Patilla is a guy that interviewed with the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, last year for their GM spot. He's viewed as a young, rising star in the industry, a guy that did, was not hired by Jeff Luno. Ed Wade hired Pete Patilla as an intern. He's got guys like Kevin Goldstein. He's got guys like Essen Bakari, who came from the Dodgers to run the R&D department. So, there are guys here that are good people. There are good people in the Astros organization. And I think that gets overlooked a little bit when we talk about the Astros culture and kind of what went on here for so long. The Astros have good people in their departments and James Click has figured that out. It's just going to be a, it's just going to have to be a balancing act for him as to how much of the old he wants to keep and how much of himself he wants to blend into it. And that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch when this offseason rolls around.
0: Going back to the field and the actual baseball for a moment, we've, we've talked about Arkady and his absence. As you mentioned, this the back of this rotation was a bit soft to begin with, with departure. So if he is not able to rejoin the team or if his absence extends deep into this short season, what is their plan for shoring up the back end of that rotation?
2: So Brent Strom, the Astros pitching coach, actually spoke to us earlier today, and he was bullish on Fromber Valdez, um, as a guy that he he has been in the Astros rotation before, but it has been very short stints and they have been pretty forgettable just with a lot of walks. He's not a guy that commands very well. But what sticks out in Brent Strom's mind all the time is there was a game against the Angels in 2018 that Framber Valdez started. And it was one of his better outings of his career. And after the game, Mike Trout said, that's the best curveball I've ever seen. And he said it of Framber Valdez. And that is the quote that always gets Brent Strom to think, I can get this guy, I can mold this guy, and use this guy in some way in this rotation. So it sounds like Framber Valdez will be the front runner, perhaps, to, to get into that rotation if Jose Arquite is not there. And I think another guy that reported recently is Josh James. Josh James, you'll remember, burst onto the scene a couple of years ago as a 100 mile an hour flamethrower at the back end of the bullpen but he used this winter to really craft a starters mindset. He Brent Strom used videos of Garrett Cole's delivery to help facilitate some an overhaul of Josh James. He he's was far too rotational in his delivery before. Now he's a lot more linear to home plate. There's a not not a lot of wasted movements. And I think the biggest thing with James is he had to learn how to use his velocity and harness his velocity to a point where he can go six or seven innings if needed and not just blow out after two innings and be tired by the third. So he used this winter to really craft a starter's mindset. And he was the front runner, I believe, for the fifth starter job in spring training before it shut down. And obviously, Jose Arquiti would have been the fourth. So now that he's back, he's going to start one of the exhibition games the Astros play against the Royals at Kauffman Stadium. And he will, um, he seems like a guy that he's pitch counts built up to 75 or 80 right now. He seems like a guy that they're confident in and can go out there and, and possibly give them some innings. But Brent Strom today did not rule out perhaps piggybacking early in the season with these guys aren't built up. You could see some of their young arms, maybe a guy like a Christian Javier who's their reigning Minor League Pitcher of the Year. Brian Abreu, a guy that snuck onto the ALCS roster last year. And then Forrest Whitley's also sort of lingering at the University of Houston at their alternate training site, former top pitching prospect. He's uh really undergone a lot of adjustments and undergone a lot of change in the last three years. He lingers around. Brent Strom said today that he feels like Forrest Whitley could be a superstar. Whether that happens this year, I guess we're going to have to wait and see, but he's certainly an option as well.
1: And as the Astros were dominating the news all off season, they weren't really doing it for transactions. They were pretty inactive in that area. They hardly acquired anyone. And I imagine part of that is that they'd already made moves. They had traded for Zach Granke and they promoted Jordan Alvarez. And part of it was that they were just, by some measures, one of the best teams of all time. So they probably didn't have a whole lot of holes to fill. but. Was any of that inactivity related to the uncertainty at the top about who was actually running the team or or making the calls or who would be? And why weren't they more involved in the Garrett Cole sweepstakes?
2: So that's a popular question. And it's a popular question just from fans on Twitter is, did the sign stealing investigation, because the investigation sort of enveloped all of free agency and all of on mm-hmm. um, the off season, the, the popular question was: Did the science stealing investigation hinder their pursuits in the free agent market? I, I don't have a clear answer for that. Um, I think I I tend to believe that if you pay guys a lot of money, they will go wherever, and it doesn't really matter. But you have to remember where they were payroll wise too. They were already over the first luxury tax threshold. It did not seem like Jim Crane wanted to go much further than that. So they were operating under a pretty strict payroll constraint. Garrett Cole, they were never going to be legitimate options for Garrett Cole. Uh, Jeff Luno and Scott Boris had a pretty uh, fleeting conversation at the general manager at the general manager's meetings about Cole, and that's about as far as their negotiations went. Jeff Luno, I think, one, in one of his last on-record interviews, Jeff Luno said, "I kind of saw where that was going, and we just knew we couldn't do that." So they were never going to be players for Garrett Cole. And it was, and it's kind of interesting to think that because because of the trade for Zach Grinke, they had depleted their farm system so much. And much of what went over in the Zach Grinke deal were two of their pitching prospects that they thought could be in their rotation in the very near future and Corbin Martin and J.B. Bukowskis. Though Corbin Martin had had Tommy John surgery, he's a guy that made his major league debut last year. And they thought certainly could be in their rotation in the, in the future. And JB Bukowskis um, had had issues in, in the minor leagues, but they still thought highly of them enough. So it was a little bit weird to see them not be as aggressive, but you, when you add in the payroll constraints and when you see what they did too, under Jeff Luno, they had not been a team that was privy to reunions with their free agents. Um, in Jeff Luno's entire tenure, I believe they only re-signed two free agents. It was Tony Sipp, and then it was when Colby Rasmus accepted their qualifying offer before the 2016 season. Those were the only two free agents Jeff Luno ever re-signed as the Astros general manager before the, this off season. They re-signed Martin Maldonado who, if you followed the Astros for the last three years, you understand that they love Martin Maldonado. They traded for him at two consecutive trade deadlines um, because they like him so much. And then they, they re-signed Joe Smith who, was going to be, I believe, their their answer for losing Will Harris. Will Harris was their fireman, the guy that came in whenever AJ Hinch needed a an out, needed to get out of a sticky situation. They envisioned Joe Smith being that guy, and he was on a re- and he came relatively cheap as well, two years and eight million dollars. So I think the payroll constraints and where they were at the luxury tax. I think that perhaps had more to do with their inactivity this winter than the sign stealing scandal.
0: You mentioned Whitley, and there are a number of other prospects who are in the Astros 60-man player pool. This system has sort of dimmed in terms of its reputation in the last little bit because of trades and promotions. But for the guys who are not at the University of Houston, who are away from instruction, what the team is doing to try to facilitate and sort of direct their player development, given that we're not going to have a minor league season, I would imagine that there's probably a change in experience from being with people who like Rapsodos and Edutronics to trying to figure something out in your backyard. So what are they doing for the guys who are not part of the player pool?
2: That is a fantastic question that I would love to report more, but the delays in testing have sort of overtaken my life the Fair last enough. few days. And <laughs> I've had an I've had a phone call set up with Pete Patilla who is their assistant general manager. But was their director of player development before becoming their uh, lone assistant general manager last year he's the guy that's sort of overseeing this i do know that james click has lauded every time we speak to him about about this specific question about what they're going to do player development wise for this guy he's, he's always said i am amazed at the ways we're finding to teach guys the game of baseball without being able to play baseball and that's come I believe I've heard through zooms I've heard there have been guys that have gone into parking garages and made home plate first base second base third base and they've hit in parking garages they've thrown bullpens in parking garages some of them so a lot of them are making do with what they have but it's been a lot of virtual stuff and the Astros as we know were were under Jeff probably one of the leaders in player development one of the leaders in, in you know, the cutting edge form of player development. And that's going to be tested uh, very much so over the next two or three months. And I wish I had a better answer for you as to what specifically they're going to do.
1: Looks like Kyle Tucker is probably going to play a bigger role on this team than he has in the past. I know he did better in his audition last year than he had previously. It'd be hard to do worse. But they have not moved him, obviously. And I don't know whether that's a reflection of their confidence in him or other teams' lack of confidence in him. But what are they hoping for or expecting out of him this year?
2: So I think with Jordan Alvarez, if Jordan Alvarez does not start start with the team on opening day, it certainly would open a a possibility of – letting Kyle Tucker get some DH at bats, some everyday DH at bats. He's certainly he's a left-handed hitter just like Alvarez. He's probably does not have the power potential that Alvarez does, but I don't think there's probably anybody in baseball save five or ten guys that have the power potential that Jordan Alvarez does. This is a big opportunity for him. And even with Jordan Alvarez on the roster in a in an ideal world, Tucker was already going to be battling Josh Reddick for everyday playing time in right field. Josh Reddick has not had the offensive seasons these last two years that he is accustomed to having, and they needed they, they need some sort of jolt and some sort of life there, and it was every indication in spring training was that Kyle Tucker was going to get a fair shot at the right field job. Dusty Baker had even talked about he, he was going to perhaps play them evenly to start and then see who sort of won the job, and I believe... If Alvarez does start with the team on opening day, that could be the, the possibility here. Whoever gets hot is sort of gonna take over. But they like Kyle Tucker. Um, they worked him out at first base today at the inter, at, during the Astros inter-squad game. He was taking some first base reps in in West Palm Beach this spring as well. So they're trying to make him a little more versatile defensively. He's not gonna wow you, I don't think, at any corner spot. He's, he's fine defensively. He's not, he's not super, he's not elite there. Um, making a lot him having the opportunity to play first base and him having that capability i think only increases his likelihood but his his value is tied pretty solely to his bat and he's going to have to be able to use the other way go the other way teams have shifted him from the moment he stepped onto the big league diamond and that hasn't changed he bunted a few times against the shift in spring training he even tried to bunt against the shift in the inter-squad game the other day so he's trying to trying to to solve the shift, trying to go the other way, trying to use all the fields. But this is a big year for Kyle Tucker. And I think certainly if Jordan Alvarez is not ready for opening day, he's a guy that they're gonna need to deliver major league quality at bats right from the get go.
1: So two questions about fans being in the stands or not being in the stands. First, it seems like Jim Crane is determined to get fans in the stands in Houston if he can. Do you think that he will be able to go ahead with that? And second, because most teams it seems probably will not have fans in the stands, I know a lot of people are disappointed that they won't be able to attend Major League Games in 2020 for many reasons. But one of those reasons is that they won't be able to boo the Astros everywhere they go. So... Do you think the Astros players are relieved on some level that they will not be encountering that? Or do they have such chips on their shoulder that they were looking forward to being the heels on some level?
2: I don't think they were looking forward to being the heels. Mm -hmm. I think some of it was overstated in spring training about how morose it was and how that they were just sad all the time. I don't think that was the case, but I can tell you that the heckling and what went on in spring training from the fans did get to a couple of them. And it was tough on them, and I don't know how they would have been able to hold their psyche over 162-game season in full stadiums. Right. I, I just think that would have been one of the most unanswerable questions of the year, and I think that would have honestly determined the fate of their season, um, mm-hmm. how they would have been able to psychologically hold it together. And they brought Dusty Baker in because because Jim Crane and ownership thought he could be the guy that galvanized them, but Dusty Baker's seen a lot. I don't think he would have ever seen anything like what the Astros were gonna go through on the road this year. So I don't think any of them would tell you this publicly, but I think deep down in their insides, they are a little bit relieved that if they do play a season this year, they're gonna walk into empty stadiums. And that probably will include Minute Maid Park. I do not think Jim Crane is going to succeed in his mission to sell cold beer to fans, to recoup lost revenue. I think if you follow um, what is going on in Houston right now, it is quickly becoming another hot spot, if it isn't already. Labeled a hotspot. Um, I, I just, I do not see a way, ethically, morally, whatever you want to say, I do not see a, a path to where fans are in the stands at Minute Maid Park this year.
0: When the owners and the Players Association were negotiating the resumption of play, it was sometimes hard to uh, exactly decipher which ownership interests were coming to the fore. So I'm curious what sense you have of what Crane wanted in terms of a length of season. How much baseball was he actually interested in playing this year? Do you know?
2: he wanted to get back on the field he never really said specifically i we would want to play this amount of games i know he was not i do not believe he was one of the owners that was reported to just kind of want to cancel the whole thing altogether there was that group of six or seven that just wanted to end the whole thing and he was not one of them he he wanted to he wanted to play he said that he said he wanted to get it back on the field and but he also said you know the losses are are, are not biblical I don't think he went all Tom Ricketts on us but he did say that the losses out there the numbers are true and he needs to find a way to recoup some of his revenue so I'm not sure specifically how uh, how long he wanted the season to be but I do know he I do know that he wanted a season to occur
1: So I wonder what you think about the long-term outlook for this team, because it's been extremely successful, sign-stealing or not, in the last several years, but it's getting older. There are the draft pick penalties that maybe hamper their ability to replenish their pipeline. And I wonder how long they can keep this going and and whether they're willing to spend enough to keep it going. I know that Justin Verlander (laughs) thinks that he can play forever and has recently talked about making some changes that he hopes will allow him to do that. And I'd be interested in hearing about that, too. But do you think there's enough of a, a young core here to keep it going despite those penalties and despite the aging of some of the roster?
2: Well, I, I think you 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 have Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman locked up for the foreseeable future. Other mm. than that, you looked 2020 was probably going to be, and this is going to sound cliche, but 2020 was probably going to be their last best chance to get back to a World Series and win a win a non tainted title, mm. um, because their entire outfield is free agents after this season, and George Springer, Michael Brantley, and Josh Reddick. After next year, you have Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke, Carlos Correa, and Lance McCullers Jr., all free agents after next year. So you can see the window closing. You can see it's narrowing, and you can see that there, that this thing has very limited shelf life for right now, and we've talked about their farm system. I think, like perhaps every organization, James Click balks at the outside publications ranking of his farm system. He thinks that there's better talent than what the quote-unquote outside publications have have it pegged. And he actually told me that that was one of the big things he researched before taking this job because he fell into those same preconceived notions that the farm system was gutted after Alvarez and Tucker graduated and after the Zach Grinke trade. But he looked into it and he thought that there was more here perhaps than what meets the eye. But I do think the one place where they are deficient and a, a place where quite frankly, they haven't had to be replete with depth the last few years, is they don't have a lot of position player depth in their system at all. A lot of it is very young, a lot of it is at the lower levels of the minor leagues, and they're not ready to come up. Obviously, when you have an entrenched infield like they do, you don't need that imminently, but when 2022 rolls around, you're going to be looking at shortstop, you're going to be looking at first base, Julie Gurriel is also a free agent after this year. You're looking around and you're wondering who's going to step in internally. And then you have to, you have to ask yourself, well, what is Jim Crane willing to spend? And for years and years, that was always the question here in Houston is if the time is right, will Jim Crane spend? And he's shown he has. He, he took on Verlander's contract. He took on Zach Grinke's contract, uh, this past year. And when he was asked, I asked him on the tele, on the, on the infamous cold beer teleconference, I asked him how this shutdown will affect player acquisition or player retention and he was pretty forthright in saying that we plan to be active no matter what the market is and and we plan to spend no matter what the market is so it seems like he is wants to keep this thing going and he seems like it wants to keep the window open but if you look at it just on paper and just what the astros have in their system this is a thing that by 2022 you could be asking a lot of questions about what the future holds.
0: You mentioned McCullers. I know that the pitchers have not had a lot of opportunity to show where they are in this uh, return to camp. But what what's the latest on him and sort of what are the club's expectations of him this year?
2: They need him to start every fifth day for the 12 or 13 starts that he could possibly have because like we've talked about earlier, the back end of this rotation is so unsettled that they really need um, someone to eat some innings at the top. And you know Verlander and Grinky, you just kind of assume that they're going to do that. But Lance McCullers, he's chomping at the bit. To to I hate to sound cliche, but this guy is just, he's so ready to pitch. I mean, he, Tommy John surgery and, and the rehabilitation afterward, it can be such an ostracizing thing when you're away from the team so much. I, I think he only went on maybe one or two road trips in the entire 2019 season while he was rehabbing. So he was away from the guys for a while. And in a way, he's saying that, The shutdown sort of did help him because he ramped up and was able to ramp back down again. He's so used to it because that's kind of part of Tommy John or at least was part of his Tommy John rehab was getting ramped up, getting ready to go for and being able to go for spring training. And then he got up to where he needed to be. He was able to ramp down again. Now he's doing that. So they were going to have a governor on him this year. If in a 162-game season, Lance McCullers was going to have none of that. He, he balked at every talk of an innings limit. He balked at every talk of being on a pitch count or anything. Well, now he's able to eat. He can let it eat now because in a 60-game season, um, they need every inning they can get out of him. And And everything you hear about him from Brent Strom, from people inside the organization, he's probably the most ahead of any pitcher right now in their system so they expect big things from him and they expect him to be the workhorse as much of a workhorse as you can be in a 60 game season they expect Lance McCullers to do that
0: after watching him warm up in the outfield of Dodger Stadium after game six in 2017 for a potential entrance in game seven I have no trouble believing that Lance McCullers is champing at the bit to pitch
1: (laughs) Can you tell us about the Verlander overhaul because it's not often that you see someone who's been as successful as Verlander try to change things?
2: I can try to explain it. I'm not a I'm not a huge anatomy major, but I can try to explain how the, how he explained it to us. So as I think we all remember, Justin Verlander ended when when the shutdown ended the sport, Justin Verlander was dealing with an injury. He was dealing with a lat injury in spring training. While he was rehabilitating his lat injury, his groin flared up and he went to have imaging done, and they recommended surgery, so he went to Dr. William Myers, the same same surgeon who performed his core surgery when he was in Detroit. After Dr. Myers performed the surgery, he told Verlander that the groin was so unhealthy and so beat up that if he would have pitched this season, if he would have tried to pitch through it, he would have probably torn it off the bone. So when he was told that, Verlander, he said a light bulb sort of went off, And he has said for the last two years, he's always said that his mechanics were okay, but he he could never put his finger on what was wrong. And he said, you know what, if I was gonna pitch only one or two more years, these mechanics would have been sustainable. But I wanna pitch for eight to 10 more years, and I need mechanics that are not so stressful on parts of my body. So what he ended up doing is, when he started throwing again off the mound, when he started throwing again in May, He's he he called it a full rebuild a total overhaul of his mechanics And when you look at screenshots from his 2019 delivery um, You can see he's very vertical and he's very arched and he said that that put too much stress on a lot of parts of his body And now he thinks that it was his body Compensating for the unhealthy groin is why he was like that and he used an example of his release point in 2019 was seven feet two inches off the ground the highest release point of his career he usually likes to throw at about six feet, five inches off the ground. So he, um, he found a way to become less arched, become less vertical in his delivery, and he's got his release point back down. He threw today, I believe he threw 67 pitches through five innings and struck out six guys. He is facing most of the Astros major league lineup and making them look pretty silly. I understand right now that um, pitchers are going to be ahead of hitters, especially in this weird short ramp up. But... I had uh, Steve Sparks, the Astros radio broadcaster, who was watching the live stream today. Uh, our favorite former knuckleballer. He texted me saying, "JV is unhittable," and w- w- you're starting to hear more things like that about him. He looks he looks about as good as you can ask for a 37 year old to look after a three month layoff with groin surgery. So um, he has made no bones about it that he wants to pitch until he is 45 years old. And these mechanics over. This mechanics overhaul over the break is only going to help him with that. Nolan Ryan is no longer with the Astros organization, but Verlander always used to say when he would pitch and see Nolan Ryan sitting behind the, sitting behind the catcher, that would be the days where he'd get most excited because Nolan Ryan is his idol and he wants to pitch as long as Nolan Ryan did. And with these mechanics, he thinks that he'll be able to sustain for eight to 10 more years.
1: So I know that you weren't actually covering the Astros during the 2017 season. You had covered them previously, and you've covered them subsequently, but you weren't there then, so it's not as if you could have or should have noticed the the banging scheme or anything. You don't have to beat yourself up over that. But I still wonder what it's been like to cover this team over the past year or so during all the ups and downs and the other downs and the other downs. And I noticed last week when I wrote an article about MLB's attempts to crack down on foreign substance use and what that would do to spin rates and strikeout rates. And one of the things I had in that article was just about the prevalence of sticky stuff usage across the league in general, but But also about the pretty strong evidence that Trevor Bauer started using this stuff last year because his spin rate spiked. And most of the people in my mentions, it seemed like, were Astros fans who were sort of crowing about the piece and saying, See, other teams cheat, and it's not just us. And tweeting at Trevor Bauer to say, Hey, Trevor Bauer cheated too, and hey, I'll take the traffic. But it seems like there's some sensitivity there, maybe still some raw emotions or defensiveness, and you're writing for that audience. And I wonder what that's been like.
2: There's sensitivity. There's whataboutism. Yes. There is speculation about what this letter from Brian, right. from Rob yes. Manford to Brian Cashman says. Um, it's, it's a difficult line to toe because um, there are people that every time I write something baseball related about the Astros there, they just, I get. 20 trash cans in my mentions, even though I have blocked, even though I've muted the word trash cans and bang and buzzer and everything about that. So it's a very delicate line to toe. And you're right. I was not here in 2017. I started, um, I started with a week left in spring training in 2018. So I was dropped in at perhaps uh, one of the weirder times to drop in. The, the World Series hangover was maybe just dissipating a little bit when they were going to start the 2018 season. And since then it was, a lot of good baseball but there were always the questions and certainly I heard the questions I think a lot of us that covered the game and that are within the game we all heard the speculation and it's speculation that was not centrally tied to the Astros there were other teams that are people still speculate about that are doing various nefarious things to gain an advantage but The Astros, obviously, were the ones that were caught. And it's very difficult just for the Astros fan base to come to grips with that. For most of the Astros fan base, that is. Um, There is a lot of what abouts. There is a lot of this team did it too. Why did we get punished? There is a lot of they need to look into this, this, and this. There's a lot of breaking down specific at-bats from specific Dodgers, wondering if they saw something or heard something or had a – pitch or knew what was coming. So it's a very difficult time on Twitter. Sometimes I try to stay off of Twitter as much as possible for my own mental health. Um, but um, they're, they're a group that when we were allowed in the clubhouse, um, the clubhouse was um, before the before the sanctions came down, it was a good clubhouse to deal with. There are good guys in there. There are guys that are amenable. There are guys that are generous with their time. There are guys that are very, they have some very smart guys in that clubhouse that know the game and that present it well and they're able to explain it well. I just worry that now that all this has come out, I I hope and I worry that, you know, they're going to be a lot more reserved and they're going to be a lot more uh, shunning the public light in the near future.
1: All right. Well, you probably have more testing updates to get to. So we will leave you with the last question that we've been asking all our guests, which is a record prediction. And we want to know what The Astros record would have been in a 162 game season, which again, I guess you've got to then figure in the psychological effects that we were talking about of being hated everywhere you go, which is pretty hard to predict that. But that and then also what you think their records might be in this strange 60 game season.
2: In a 162 game season, I would have probably said around 94 to 95 wins. So Mm -hmm. let's go with 94 and 68. Mm-hmm. And then I don't even know how to, I'm not a math guy. I don't even know how to average that out for a 60 game. See, it's so difficult to, and I don't know like what the best record will be in the 60 game. Like what is, what are they reaching for? Like what will the Yankees or the Dodgers do? Um, right. I, I, I guess. Something like thirty-three wins sounds right. Thirty-three to thirty-four wins. So mm-hmm. let's yeah. let's go. Thir- let's go thirty-four wins. Let's go thirty-four and
0: twenty-six.
1: Yeah, ninety-four win pace would be the thirty-five, I think. But uh, yeah, something like that.
0: We have them projected for thirty-five point five wins at FanGraphs. Mm-hmm. So you were. Or in the neighborhood, for sure.
1: All right. Okay, well, you can follow the Astros season by reading Chandler at The Chronicle. And even though he is trying to stay off Twitter, he is unsuccessful at that. In fact, he has tweeted during this interview somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulate <laughs> you on your multitasking ability. You can find him on Twitter at Chandler underscore Rome. Thank you very much for your time thanks guys i appreciate it all right we'll take one more quick break now and we'll be back with ryan divish of the seattle times to talk about the mariners
0: joined now to discuss the Seattle Mariners by Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. Ryan, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing okay. We've been leading these much later preview pods off with a question that's pretty standard now. How has the process of camp gone for the Mariners so far? I know that uh, they seem to have had a, a smoother time of testing and intake than some teams, but what's the atmosphere like at the ballpark? How are the players sort of reacting to their strange circumstances and what state does the roster sort of find itself in when it comes to COVID, at least as you've been able to clean?
3: Yeah, I, I think they were very proactive about getting in guys in early. I think, what was it, July 1st was kind of the report date. And that was a, a Monday or a Wednesday, but the Mariners started asking guys to come in on the Friday before that. You know, when it, when it basically, when the, the agreement was, or not agreement, cause there was no agreement, but when they just decided on a schedule and then agreed upon the operating manual, the Mariners basically reached out to their players and said, you know, get here as soon as possible so we can get you tested and begin the intake process. You know, they set up everything really quickly. I think they had it kind of in place and ready to go. And so that, You know, they could get these guys in and they wanted to get them tested and let them kind of just get set. Particularly if anybody, you know, we've heard is that, you know, they can take a couple days or, you know, any issue with the test, you got to retest again. They didn't want to deal with that. So for the most part, they had all their guys in. I think there was about six total missing. And I think five of the six are back. And, you know, obviously they can't comment on any of this stuff. But it was... I think, yeah, so they, there's one guy missing as of now, and it's uh, Yoshihisa Hirano. is the only guy I have not seen at workouts. The rest of them have all been there. And so, no, I, I think it's been pretty smooth otherwise. You know, the players, I, I will give them credit. They're saying all the right things, and, and they're wearing the masks, and they've been very preachy about it, and they've been very receptive to doing kind of PSAs for the Mariners online and stuff like that too. I, I do think in this area, Meg, you would know this, there is a, a very progressive stance for the most part on on wearing the masks and, and doing everything you can to socially distance. Yeah. And um, I think the Mariners have bought into that. And I think the ownership group has bought into it. And I think they they really do feel like they have a, a responsibility to promote these kinds of safety issues. I, I know that when I wrote a story about Kyle Seeger and the mask and safety and all these things that... The Mariners owner, John Stanton, came up and said that the the health director was very happy that Kyle talked about these things with us and that we ran it in the Seattle Times. So I think in that regard, you know, it, they are doing the best they can. They're trying to make this as normal as possible. But in the end, it still feels a little odd.
1: Well, if we can go back to the before times for a second and remember what life was like in 2019 for the Mariners specifically. This was kind of the first season after they embarked on their rebuild or step back or whatever they're calling it. And as anticipated, the results on the field weren't great or the record wasn't great despite that hot start. But would you say that it was a setback or it was just sort of the the planned lack of success? I mean, Jerry Depoto set a pretty aggressive target of 2021 for potential competition again or or even contending. And we can talk about what this season does to derail that. But did last year get them closer to that goal or, or was it less progress than was hoped for?
3: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, the baseball was absolutely terrible. You know, it was just really bad. I, th- you know, they went thirteen and two to start. Yeah. And then basically, I think you know, over the next, I think thirty-five games or forty-five games, they won like twelve games. So it was just not. It was bad. It was just bad baseball. Uh, they were horrible <laughs> defensively. You know, they purposely started Tim, Tim Beckham at shortstop, and Tim Beckham was so bad defensively that he lost his shortstop that the Rays went out and acquired Brad Miller, who was not good at defense, and Nick Franklin, who was not good at defense, to try and replace Tim Beckham at shortstop. So he was bad as expected. Domingo Santana was terrible in the outfield. You know, that was uh, a growing year in a lot of ways. They they combed the waiver wire, claiming everybody that they could. Every reliever that threw 95 they were going to take a chance on, they sign guys out of the independent league. So it was, you know, much of the rebuild last year was all about what was done in the minor leagues and and obviously the major league product was just not very good. And you know, and and really it didn't I guess maybe the one major aspects of like that they in terms of the rebuild that helped them at the big league level on that club last year was getting JP Crawford basically up after the service time manipulation and having him play every day. You know, getting an extended look at Shed Long, some of those guys, and then you know, pushing some other guys to the boundaries. But it was basically a lost season on so many levels in terms of big league performance, and it was, it was every bit as terrible, if not worse, than the the '94 lost season or '95 lost season that they threw out there.
1: Yeah, I'm reading from the Mariners' essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual by Graham McCary, and he's talking about the quartet of players the Mariners acquired, some older guys like Malik Smith or J.P. Crawford or Domingo Santana or Omar Narvaez, and he wrote, when the Mariners acquired that quartet, they presumably had plans to tweak their games and spark some sort of breakout. A year into the rebuild, it looks as though those plans have already failed. Crawford and Smith still can't hit, and it turns out Smith can't handle center field either. Narvaez still can't catch, although his hitting has improved even further. Santana, meanwhile, had such a difficult time in left field that his tenure in Seattle is already over, etc. And whether you agree with that or not, I I guess you can say, but do you think that they were hoping for more out of some of those guys that they acquired, or were they looked at as sort of stop gaps to at least put a respectable product on the field in the short term?
3: Yeah, I mean I, I think there are mostly stop gaps. You know, JP Crawford is a guy. They didn't have a a shortstop in the system and they still felt like You know, at that last year, I think he was age 24 going into the season, and they felt like if they could clean up some stuff defensively, that his athleticism, overall athleticism, would play, and they did that. I thought he was significantly better defensively. That again, the bar that I was watching was Tim Beckham. So I mean, J.P. Crawford looked like Ozzy Smith most days, but yeah, you know, the rest of those guys, they just were guys. You know, the baseball vernacular, guys versus dudes, or you know, Mm -hmm. me and my me and my friends call him. Jags or J.A.G.'s, just another guy, you know, Santana had some, you know, he he drove in some runs and he had some early, some showing early and with Narvaez, I think they looked at him and, you know, they thought maybe they could fix him catching wise and this bat would help and and they were happy to move him this offseason because his value was inflated. Like, I'm looking at kind of the roster last year. What they really wanted to see was Daniel Vogelbach get 500 plate appearances, which he did. You know, they wanted to see J.P. Crawford play, you know, as many games as possible. And he played 93. He had a couple of dinging injuries, and that was, you know, okay. And, and basically the rest of it, you know, Shed Long was the guy that got time. And then by September, they wanted to see if some of those kids that they had at their AA and AAA could come up and help him But for the most part, yeah, I, it was just kind of a year where they were they were just putting a lineup out there to get through 162 games with a handful of guys that they were hoping they could see something from and then, you know, move all of them. I, they set a record for, I think, players used last year. And I think they set a record for pitchers used last year. And, you know, I, I, like we were playing the game the other day, Greg Johns and I, about players on last year's team, like the number of relievers that we saw. And we always joke that because every reliever in the Mariners' Camp was six foot three with a beard, white guy with a beard. We can remember all of them. I mean, I'm looking at them now like Parker Markell, um, <laughs> Sean Armstrong, Hunter Strickland, Ryan Garten. Yeah. I mean, like, holy Congrats cow. on
1: being big leaguers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's true. Like, <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, guys like Ryan Court and some of these guys, they. They made' them, they got big league time because of just the situation they were in, and so <laughs> good for them,
0: yeah, one of the guys who did not get big league time but presumably will and for several years to come because of his uh, pre debut extension is Evan White, Evan White for. Uh, those folks who have not yet uh, delighted themselves with his profile is a is a backwards guy. I don't mean like as a human being. He he bats right and throws left as a first baseman. His defense has always been noted as sparkling and has sort of led his profile, which sounds unusual for a first baseman. But if you watch it, it actually makes a good deal of sense. I'm curious what the team is looking for. F- From him in this shortened season and what their expectations are around his bat specifically because he did seem to take a big leap forward in double a last year, even though his bat had notoriously been kind of light. Are they expecting those gains to sort of sustain themselves? What are they expecting from white this year?
3: Yeah, Evan white the nicest kid in camp. That's what they always say. Everybody (laughs) says he's the nicest guy and he is I I wrote a story all about how this guy, this kid had dropped all of his baseball cards. He's not a kid. I guess he was like 23. I guess that's a kid to me, but kid that was there and he had his box of baseball cards and he wanted to get some autographs and he, he dropped them and they went everywhere and players are just walking by and this kid is panicking, you know, and Evan White stops and helps pick them all up and made sure the kid was okay, you know, and signed a card for him and everything. And And, and I asked some players about that. I was like, dude, they're like, I'm surprised he didn't carry the box for him, you know, and ask us to all get autographs for him. So I like defense at first base growing up. I loved Mark Grace. I loved how he played first base and Evan White's defense is as good as anything I've seen in a long time. And granted, the Mariners have had Deho Lee and Daniel Vogelbach and, Adam Lind and all those guys play first. But this is as good as, you know, Ola Rood or JT Snow or all these guys. He's super athletic. Like, if you put him in the outfield, I think he'd be pretty good. The bat is interesting. It's a weird weird setup. He starts with his hands very low. But a lot of this was done to get that bat in a better um, power position so he can elevate. Traditionally, he's had some of the highest exit velocities of any player within the organization. But the launch angle is just kind of funky and he was hitting a lot of top spin line drives which was you know 20 years ago he'd be you know hailed as great but now they want that backspin and so he's been trying to do that he admitted that the park in double-a arkansas got into his head like several of those guys did and he was trying to trying to force power onto his swing and once he stopped doing that that power actually came and he spent the entire offseason working out I bet you he put on 15 pounds of muscle. He looks noticeably different, and the ball, he is hitting the ball harder. Now, whether or not, you know, he'll ever have the power profile of a first baseman remains to be seen. I don't know that he'll ever be that 30-plus home run guy. But, you know, if you get the if you get an increased amount of doubles and, and, and the walks, and you can be a 25-homer guy, I think he'll take that plus the defense. So, I, I, you know, the extension was surprising because of the lack of big league experience but if you know the guy and you know the work ethic you can understand why they trusted him to give him that and really it could be very team friendly if he plays up to expectations yeah. so i think i'm very interested i mean like he's going to play every day and to see how he handles it and you know they really just want to kind of see him get out there and play and 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 how he that bat and the kind of setup and the changes he makes will equate to big league pitching uh particularly on the off-speed stuff but he does hit the ball hard. The other day, he yesterday, he took a 95-mile-per-hour a fastball from Johan Ramirez and just hit a rocket to right center into the wind that, you know, again, didn't have quite the launch angle they wanted. It might have gone out, but it hit off the wall, and it was hit very well, and he was really hitting the ball hard in spring training when, when it all ended. So I think if he's hitting the ball hard and the continued work to find that proper launch angle, I think you're going to see some results.
1: You say Kikuchi had a pretty disappointing debut year based on his performance in Japan and what we knew about his stuff. I expected him to be more successful than he was. So, can we chalk any of that up to just the difficulty of making that transition? And has he made any adjustments for this year? Is there hope for a more successful sophomore campaign?
3: Yeah. So, you say he had just kind of, he was that guy that decided he was going to change everything from start to start. And he really struggled um, kind of just adapting to, one, the workload, his throwing routine, which they wanted to change. And then I think also not maybe being able to dominate quite the way he did. You know, like I I think early on, and he, he admitted it, that the power aspect of players in the big leagues, and he saw it early, just the number of home runs he gave up in spring training, which isn't always a fair measure because it's Arizona, the ball is dry, everything else. But he just became super cognizant of how much power was in a lineup, particularly in the American League 1 through 9. And I think he got a little fine. And then he started tinkering with his mechanics all the time. The timing was off. It wasn't normal delivery. They've, they asked him to clean some stuff up, and he would change, you know, too many voices all the time t- telling him different things. And so uh, this offseason, he just decided, uh, kind of at the urging of Trevor Bauer, to go to driveline and and clean up his release point, clean up the delivery, trying to get the timing down, find the right arm slot for him. And, you know, because he was obsessed with velocity, he was that guy that would look at the radar gun after every pitch, particularly mm-hmm. in the fastball. And that's not what you want. And so they he went to driveline, did a lot of work, cleaned up his mechanics, kind of worked with the Mariners pitching guys too. And, and when he came to camp, like... He was hitting 95 pretty consistently, but it wasn't a max effort 95, and and it was a clean, easier delivery. He came out to get to 95, whereas last year when he would throw 95, it looked like he had to work to get to 95. This year it looks better. So, you know, I think it's all a lot of it for him was just adapting. So last year wasn't a you know an adapt year to it, and then they'll move forward. And I think they're expecting a lot more from him. He's looked really good so far. He's going to pitch later today, but. You know, it remains to be seen. Will, if he has negative results, or if he gets banged around a little bit, will he be that guy that changes up all the stuff he worked on this off season, or will he stick with it and realize that even though maybe it didn't work out well in certain starts, this is still the best path for him? I, I you know, you you would hope it's the latter for the Mariners' sake. But if he doesn't and he continues to be that guy that's inconsistent, you know, the Mariners have to make a decision here pretty quickly because of the way his contract's set up. You know, you you have to either, you know, not exercise that option or, you know, turns into a player one. So I'm curious to see how they handle. I think this is a big year for that, that they have to kind of determine who you say Kikuchi really is and if he's going to be part of this rebuild going forward or if they, they get out of that contract at the earliest possible opportunity.
0: guess we'll stick on the the pitching theme for a second and talk about Justice Sheffield, who had a very rough first go with the big league club last year and actually got skipped down to double A so that he could work on stuff without having to deal with the rabbit ball. Did better upon his return. His ERA wasn't all that much improved. But if you look at his peripheral stuff, he had better performance once he came back to the Mariners. Where is Sheffield at? Where was he at in the spring? And kind of where do you see him now? Is he going to be, you know, he was the big prospect return for folks who don't remember in the james paxton trade and i think has not quite lived up to what mariners fans were hoping for a guy who was as talented and as beloved as paxton was but where does he sit in sort of in the fray now and uh what are you expecting from him in 2020
3: yeah this is i mean like and this is kind of the big issue with the mariners rebuild plan and 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 how it's been affected by all of this is that you know they they wanted him to make you know, 25 to 28 starts at the MLB level. He was going to be in the rotation, I think, in the, the four spot. And, you know, they're just going to run him out there every five days and and let him build and, and let him kind of go and, and fail and succeed and all that stuff But without the pressure being sent down. And he's not going to have that. I thought this spring he looked better in the sense that the changeup that he needs to work on was a lot better. And just the overall consistency of fastball command, I think one of the things that he started to do is he started he went to a two-seam fastball grip and added a two-seam fastball to go with the four-seam because his four-seam had the spin rate of a two-seam. And so he's went to a two-seam fastball to use there. He still has a four-seam, and he's kind of worked hard to increase the spin rate on that, but it's only kind of in elevated situations. You know, it's not a, it's not a pitch that he's going to use. The bulk of the time, the two seam will be the more the usage pitch to complement the slider and then the the changeup. And I thought that was a big deal. Like, you know, if you, if you're not going to have the proper spin for the four seam and you're throwing a two seam spin rate, at least get the action. And the way his movement, or his natural movement was, anyways, was kind of to to kind of move like a two seamer at times. So I think that's a big deal. Yeah, he got the the rabbit ball got in his head when he was at Tacoma last year just getting, and he just got afraid of the strike zone and you get too fine and you start building up your pitch count. And he just was not very efficient within the strike zone. I don't know that he'll ever be plus command guy. You know, the the delivery that he has is, is a big, it's an effort delivery. And he does pitch with a lot of emotion and energy. I think that's always going to play into it. But there was a start against the Cubs last year where I thought he looked a lot better and it gave him some confidence. And so you know, that's, that's what's going to hurt in this is that Maris going to run a six-man rotation. He's going to get, what, 10 starts? You know, do you really right. know what he is or isn't? You know, because there are a lot of scouts that felt like because he was so inefficient in the strike zone and so heavy stuff-related that maybe he would end up, ultimately end up being a reliever. But, I mean, I, you don't make that decision until you've exhausted every possible chance to start. Right. And I think, you know, this is still going to leave them up in the air with him and even Justin Dunn. About who these guys are as big league starters
1: Another member of that rotation We haven't touched on yet is Taiwan Walker Back in Seattle after throwing One big league inning last year And 13 big league innings the year before that Still only 27 Years old which I, I did a double take When I saw that that was the case He just came up so young that Even though it was a while ago he is still fairly young So how is his health Right now and what are The expectations for him
3: yeah, he's, he looked good the other day. He pitched Monday, fastball sat about 94, 95. Just he's so big and physical. You look at him, and you're right. He isn't very old. You forget he's been around a long time. You know, I think the big question with Taiwan will always be if he ever has the requisite breaking stuff to kind of complement the fastball and that split changeup that he throws. You know, he's he's messed, he has a cutter, slider type of deal he throws, and he's messed around He has two variations of it, he says, the cutter that he throws harder and a slider that's got more break. Plus, he has a curveball that, you know, for a long time was the equivalent of a high school curveball, show it to you, loopy, but never generating that. He's really kind of pushed into the analytics side and checked out spin rate and really went to work developing a grip and a release point that would maximize the curveball spin rate. He went back to a spike grip on the curveball, and he thinks that, you know, with continued work, it could be a swing and miss pitch. And, you know, again, this is a big year for him. Like, we asked him about opting out and all these other things. He's like, I haven't pitched in two years. I got a pitch, and I'm a free agent after this year. So I think, you know, he can help himself by just proving he's healthy for 10 starts. Go out, show that the velocity's back, that you're able to, st- you know, post every five days or six days with the Mariners case. Make your 10, 11 starts, and then head into free agency. And then there's a chance, like, if the Mariners don't like what they see from from Don or from Sheffield or somebody else that they would possibly bring him back for another year.
0: We'll pivot to some of the prospects who are in the Mariners player pool in a second. But you mentioned sort of the apprehension and disappointment around what a shortened season is going to do for guys like Sheffield. I'm curious for the minor league pitchers that the Mariners have. You know, this is an organization that in the last couple of years has gotten pretty good at developing pitchers and they have a couple of really promising guys some of them are in the player pool some of them aren't what is their approach to player development just generally right now because i have to imagine that for a team like seattle that's counting on its prospects you know both the ones that are close to the majors and a little further away to keep making strides and leading the next good mariners team to the postseason that the lack of a minor league season has to be particularly nerve-wracking
3: yeah i mean like those innings, you know, the innings build up for kids in the minor leagues, for pitchers in the minor leagues, is real. You have to, you have to generate those innings um, to kind of build the strength up and get the, get them used to it. And um, look, the, their plan right now, and I think they have other top ten pitching prospects. I think they have eight of them here, eight or nine of them in camp. In the the player pool so they're gonna try and use these games and then once the regular season starts in the alternative training site in Tacoma they're going to pay I think play inter squads four to five days a week to try and generate those innings as best as possible now they won't be the same kind of innings but you know they, they need to get innings I mean somebody like Isaiah Campbell who maybe isn't their top pitching prospect, but he's a guy that they want to see. He didn't pitch last year due to the workload he had in college. Well, you know, he's was he gonna get this year? He sat out an entire year, his entire short season last year and didn't pitch. And now he's going into a very truncated and, and unique setting to try and get these innings back. So, you know, they're gonna try and manufacture competitive situations down there. But I think ultimately baseball and the Mariners are hoping that they can figure out some way to have an extended spring training league um, down in Arizona in October, November, which, you know, looking at the COVID numbers, you think is just fool's, fool's goal. But, yeah, I, I don't think there's any good way that they're going to be able to get the innings and the experience back for these pitchers. But at the same time, I guess every other team is dealing with it. But, you know, I, we mentioned it, I, but Logan Gilbert, their top pitching prospect, he was supposed to be in the big leagues right now. And I just don't think that there's any way that they're going to take him and put him into a short and regular season, start the service clock when he doesn't have that, you know, 15 starts that he was supposed to have at double A AA and triple A leading into it. And, you know, that's that's a big problem because, you know, and even somebody like Sam Carlson, who is a, a prospect that came off Tommy John, hadn't pitched in two years. He's not in the player pool. So how yeah. do you get those innings back for him? You know, I mean, is he in Minnesota throwing bullpens to high school kids? I I don't know. Right. But, I mean, the pit, so much about pitching is stressful or is innings, innings experience, innings, bulk innings, but also within the innings, stressful moments, leverage situations, all these things. How do you handle it and then bounce back every five days? And, and it's just lost on all of them.
0: Yeah, one of the guys who is in that pool is Emerson Hancock, who is the Mariners' first-round pick from this year, who is another college arm is this a concerted strategy on the part of the Mariners scouting department or is this just a, a you know an artifact of who was available in the draft this year when they were kind of looking around at the guys they were excited about
3: i mean like so they early on you know the, the Mariners knew they were going to be picking high as far as last year you know going into the last season before last season they knew they're going to be picking high so they they scouted what they projected to be the top 15 uh, projected picks of this draft extensively before they even knew what pick they were going to have, because they knew it would probably be in the top 10. And Hancock at the time, I remember talking to one of their area guys, they didn't think they'd have a chance at Hancock, you know, they you know unless they were in the top three. And you know, a lot of people thought that Hancock was going to go 1-1. Um, you know, the shaky kind of start to this season, there were some questions about injuries and all that stuff, and all of a sudden he's available at 6, and the Mariners, I mean, like they couldn't have probably made that call any quicker because they didn't think he would be there, and you know they've taken college pitchers like the last three years, and I there is a profile that they're looking for. You know, you look at Hancock; he's more more stuff related than maybe Gilbert or George Kirby, who were just you know pound the zone guys with stuff. Hancock's a not; he's a little more explosive, but. I just think that when he was there, they had to take him. And, you know, in terms of getting him on the right path, they do think he'll be a quick mover. They wanted to get him in and around Gilbert and Kirby and around Marco Gonzalez and see how these guys kind of all operate and and go start to start. They wanted that baseline knowledge of what their system and their expectations are like, and that's why they made sure that he was going to be here. I mean, we haven't seen him pitch in a live VP or a – an inter-squad game yet I think all those you know Kirby and and Hancock will pitch next week and I'm very curious but Jerry Depoto said that his first bullpen session that he had as when he came here they had the Rap Soto on and everything and and they told and Hancock said that he was going to throw with about 80 percent intensity and Depoto said the first five fastballs he threw were 95 so at 80 percent intensity you know I guess maybe that's what he is but that's big I, I think The Mariners needed to kind of reinvest in starting pitching, and it's so unpredictable. But these three kids seem to be moving up relatively quickly in their eyes.
1: I guess we don't have to wait any longer. Mariners fans probably want to hear about Julio Rodriguez and Jared Kelenic. And know you've know <laughs> you written that Kelenic is uh, in the best shape of his life. I guess most 20-year-old professional baseball players are probably in the best shape of their life, but better shape than he was before. And he's launching bombs all over the place. They're both on the 60 men. So what role are they expected to play this season? And are any of the other exciting top prospects going to be in the big leagues this year?
3: Yeah, so, boy... Every time I post a video of Jerry Kelnick on Twitter, it's just like a mixture of, of giddy Mariners fans and bitter and angry Mets fans. It's just really one or the other. And, and really, honestly, in talking with some scouts and just being around this organization, Kelnick is the best position player prospect that they've had with like the most upside since probably Alex Rodriguez. They A lot of people believe that he'll be better than Adam Jones. Now, I don't know. Adam Jones is really good. And I would say, for me, I would say he's the best prospect they've had since Adam Jones. Because, like, when Seeger was a prospect, he was never projected to be what Kyle Seeger was. And Kelnick, I mean, just has kind of blown the doors off of all that. He's so much more athletic. And there are some that believe that Julio Rodriguez has more talent and has the potential to be and a better, higher ceiling than Kelnick. So uh, that's... Pretty beneficial for the Mariners, who had not drafted and developed an all star since Kyle Seeger at the position player level. And so, you know, if, if Julio's that guy as a sign, or if Kelnick basically is in a draft, but one year a draft away, then that's a pretty big accomplishment for him. There is a debate about whether Kelnick should be on the team or not. He looks the part, and I'm, I'm not going to lie, I'd rather watch him play every day than Malik Smith. But he's had 80. 80 I think 83 or 93 plate appearances above Class A. And there are service time ramifications. You know, I just was texting with Jerry Depoto about it. i using a hypothetical of an outfielder being on the opening day roster and what his service time would be credited for. And he would be credited for the full year of service time typical to a 162-game season. I don't know what the manipulation date is on that. Meg, you may know. Like, is it seven or eight games into the season? Could they manipulate it? And not burn a full year to move him towards arbitration and free agency.
0: Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the exact cutoff is either, but it's it's not terribly long.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I waver on this because the kid is young, and he is he turns 21 this week, but he, he looks like he fits out there. Uh, he certainly believes he fits out there. And if you really believed that he has a chance to make your opening day a roster on 2021, to manipulate the service time by whatever, how many days, put them out there and let him play. I mean, like, if you really believe that you want, if you want him to get 48 games, or say it's 12 days, Kobe, if you wanted to get him 48 games worth the MLB experience, which is more than a September call, up and you want him next year to be in the outfield with Kyle Lewis and probably maybe Mitch Hanager, if you know, um, if he doesn't get injured again, then maybe that's worth it. You know, then you, you're looking at 2022 where your outfield is, has got anchored by Kyle Lewis and Jerry Kelnick and then whoever else you want to supplement. Maybe they're the free agent market or if it's Haniger again. But that service time thing is real and it's something they should be cognizant of because being around Kelnick and understanding what he believes he's going to be, he's not the type of kid that's going to sign a, a, a cheap extension as you know buy out his arbitration time or years of free agency I just don't believe he's that type of kid so they they have a little bit of a debate I mean like people are obviously getting excited over a couple of homers in the inner squad and you know he hit okay during spring training but there were times he looked overwhelmed I guess the real question is is whether you think he's mature enough to handle the failures that would come with being called up at such a young age you know, is he, can he be like Juan Soto, skip that far. Um, Juan Soto played, play, I think, more minor league games than Kellen Cas. But I don't know. Like, I waver every day on it. You know, I understand. If the Mariners decide, look, they don't want him to play this year. They're going to keep him down there, have him face Emerson Hancock and Logan Gilbert and George Kirby and Isaiah Campbell and Brandon Williamson every day down in Tacoma, and they're going to ramp up those competition levels, and knowing Jared he don't need to try and ramp up his competition level. If he's out there, he's, you know, he's going to be trying to take everything seriously. That's fine. And if the Mariners said, look, you know what, we're going to bring him up at this date. We're going to play him every day. And we're going to get ready because we think he's going to be in our open day roster for 2021. And I would understand that too. I guess my question would always be is what, goes into this decision-making because we, you know, I had a guy get mad at me about Mike Zanino saying they rush Mike Zanino and you can't compare that. And I said, it's not about the player and it's not about the result. It's about what went into the decision to do it. Right. and why, why why you thought that was logical and the information you used to make that decision. And I think Jack Zarensic admitted it and a lot of people within the organization admitted it. They made a mistake with Zanino and really ruined that kid and they were just too reactionary to the situation. And that was always one of the, the faults of Jack Z. He was reactionary to the last 10 games he saw or to the perception of his job um, security or the job he was doing based on the team. So, yeah, whatever they do with Kelnick, I'm more interested in the reasons why they're doing I know Larry Stone is writing something about this. He just talked to DePoto, but I was texting with DePoto this morning about it, and DePoto has been adamant that that Gilbert and Kelnick are going to spend this these next two months in Tacoma, and that it's a uh, fresh start in 2020. Julio, he looks a little less... The talent there with Julio is just... it's It's easier for him, like... The power is easier for Julio. It's more natural. Like, Kalnick basically looks like a bodybuilder now from all the time he spent lifting. His is his is through work. You know, the power generated and, and, like, the talent is supplemented through work. Julio is more naturally gifted. But he also looks to be a little bit more exposed facing these guys right now uh, and to the point where, yeah, there is no consideration for him. He's going to go down to, to Tacoma and face these guys, and, and we'll see how he does.
1: So Jerry Depoto hasn't been quite as active on the trade front Because he kind of traded everyone And didn't really have anyone left to trade I thought he would find a way But he had to slow his pace at least a little bit And I wonder what you think he will do As the Mariners do, in theory Enter a, a new competitive phase And as he has all these prospects now That's the thing He was making all these trades before With essentially no farm system Or, or any time there was anything in the farm system He would move it for, for someone else and so i wonder whether you think that was just a product of well that's what he needed to do at the time and so he was just adapting to the needs of the team and so now he's not going to do that anymore or whether we will see him become much more active again and, and whether he's wired to really hold on to prospects and let them get playing time and let them establish themselves or whether he will just have that urge to start trading people for veterans as the team gets good again
3: in terms of my off season i don't hope he's trader jerry by any means that, that <laughs> yeah. killed me yeah so the, the a lot of the trading that he did um sometimes it was just like uh like a weird game of that you would see in uh, kindergarten Well, i'll trade you this and you can trade him this and all this other stuff but you know the the roster he was he inherited and some of the orders he received from ownership about trying to compete with what he had with not much budget to make any changes you know he was forced to kind of play in the margins and take chances on guys you know the leonis martins of the world that maybe you know there's a guy that's got some talent hasn't really shown but we can use him in this way similar with a lot of relievers you know and and just some of the profiles he didn't like, you know, it's funny, I think he's tra- he traded Mark Trumbo like three different times. So, you know, it wasn't surprising that they traded him when he got there. Even Trumbo said that. He's like, the day DePoto got the job in Seattle, I thought I was going to be traded. But yeah, I think there's more in place. You know, talking with him this year, he was so giddy. Like he's never, you know, like for a GM, for the most part, very few GMs get to do the start over, you know, or at least see it through. Like, you know, he came in and inherited a bunch of old guys and a team and with orders to try and find ways to win. And then he finally convinced them to do the rebuild, which is something you want to do. He couldn't do that in Anaheim either. You know, Artie Marino doesn't believe in that stuff. So I, I I think there is an attachment to the core group of guys that he's putting together that I don't see him trading them. And, you know, looking... At the committed dollars over the next few years, you know they can be somewhat aggressive on the free agent market. If it's you know maybe not as much now as it before because of because of COVID and the less games and how that all works. But yeah, I think you can be creative and and go out and maybe get some guys. You know we always joked, but you know I I almost certainly felt like they were going to make a run at Trevor Bauer during free agency. Bauer lives here. Jerry likes him. I thought that they would make a run at him. Jerry kind of finds Trevor's personality quirky and unique, whereas others don't. (laughs) So in that regard, I'm I'm looking right now at this, this sheet here in terms of committed dollars. So... Yeah, they're going to have some money to play with.
1: Yeah, I think they're like between Tampa Bay and Cleveland for 2021 payroll in place right now. Yeah,
3: I'm looking at, let's see here, 40-man grand total, about 60, projected $66 And then in years after that, even less. I mean, Seager comes off the book after 2021, I believe. Dee Gordon's gone. Kikuchi will likely be gone. I don't see them exercising that Kikuchi deal. And so they're gonna be very minimalistic. Obviously, some guys get to arbitration numbers, but Mitch Haniger likely would be the most expensive guy on their team. You know, because Marco's already locked in at what his guaranteed money was, which is still pretty club friendly, all things considered. Six and a half million, five million, five and a half. Now like they have a lot of financial flexibility over the years, and which is something they did on purpose. It's why they're willing to pay Jay Bruce and <laughs> looking at the retained salaries. Robinson Cano, Mike Leek, Wade LeBlanc, Jay Bruce, Carlos Santana, and Sam Tu by Lala. <laughs> $31 million in retained salaries.
0: We've talked about the prospects. We've talked about the payroll flexibility. Given the prospect pieces they needed to come together and then the supplemental work they needed to do in the free agent market next year to really be the next good Mariners team, do you think that the pandemic has altered the timeline of their competitive window at all? Or they still pretty on track for a 2021 potential playoff run.
3: No, I think it's 2022. Okay. I always thought 2021 was a little, a optimistic. little much, Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, Jerry, Jerry is nothing if he isn't optimistic. But yeah, I always thought it was optimistic. I thought 2022. I mean, like, so like we were just kind of talking about it, if they if they decide to play Kellenic forty some games, and you have Kyle Lewis out there for 40, 50, 60, and Evan White for 60, and then you play all next year you know, Shed Long, all that group together, J.P. Crawford, then you're talking about, oh, you know, 200 and some games as a group over the next year and a half. And then going into 2020 or 2022, then you kind of have an idea a little bit more of who these guys are. Similar to the pitchers. You give basically Logan Gilbert a year's worth of starts, and, you know, Sheffield will have accumulated both this year and next and done. And then maybe Hancock or George Kirby are moving up and, and at AAA and ready to help you? Yeah, then maybe, but I, I just always think 2022 it's like I remember watching that Royals team before they had the Wild Card year. They were still in it in the year before, and they were in Seattle, and I think they were eliminated, that eliminated during that series, like with maybe three games left. But you could just kind of tell like they were starting to kind of click. You know, they've taken a beating, they've been ups and downs, but they put that group together and they play. But, it, you know, in talking with Bob Dutton, who covered them, it took almost a year and a half of playing together where they kind of figured out how to win games at the MLB level and then kind of putting the supplemental pieces in around it. So I I think, like, next year is going to be that seminal year where, you know, they're going to look really good for stretches. And then there'll be times where you're reminded that you just don't have that experience. And maybe you have one or two veterans that you can sign next year to help them along in that process and even supplement more going into 2022. But I think the, the ideal window for them to be a a viable contender will be 2022 with expectations. Like 2021, they could be good next year and, you know, precocious young kids and surprise people and be until at the end. But the first year where I think you should have true expectations where they should do something or be competitive within the division should be 2022. And that's if these guys stay healthy and kind of progress.
0: Right. So we've talked about a lot of the young kids, but one person who is not in the Mariners uh, locker room and clubhouse for the first time in quite a while this year is Felix. And I'm Ah. curious what the, what the atmosphere has been like uh, in camp with him gone. I know that for a lot of the players there, they they might not have had much uh, overlap or experience with him because of how young the, a lot of the squad is, but what has it been like to be without the, without the King?
3: It's, it's quiet. It's, (laughs) it's kind of sad, you know? I mean, like I covered that guy for so long and his presence, you know, they're just like a charisma that that guy had and everything he did. And it just, being around it, you know, it just was infectious. And he had an energy, and he ran the clubhouse, and he was loud and bombastic, and it was weird without him. I mean, like guys like Vogelbach are really loud and stuff, but Felix was just a different level. And you know, it, it is different. I mean, I I kind of miss having him around, you know, and and just interacting with him. I mean, now we don't get to do any of that. But yeah, it was for those years. For a while, there was a corner in the spring training clubhouse, and even in the Big League Clubhouse. Well, especially in the Spring Training Clubhouse, where Felix, Robinson Cano, and Nelson Cruz had their lockers all together, kind of in an area, and that was that. That area was always entertaining. I didn't always know what they were saying because my Spanish was pretty rudimentary, but it was crazy down there.
1: All right, so we do conclude with a prediction. For some reason, we persist. So. <laughs> Usually we ask for the the full season prediction and we will ask that how many games you think the Mariners would have won in a 162 game season and then you can do whatever adjustments you need to do to say how many you think they'll win in a 60 game season.
3: Huh. So I thought they would lose cuz their bullpen is You just... lead with the losses. Yeah, well, I'm doing the math. No, the math yeah. is easy. Their bullpen was just so is so atrocious. It's just so not good. And uh Oh, hey, Evan White just hit a home run, Meg, off of Yusei Kikuchi. Line drive over the field and left. (laughs) No, so I thought they would lose 100 to 101 games this season. So, you know, 61 or 62 wins, maybe. And then now in this season, I think maybe 23, 24. I mean, the expanded rosters could help them a little bit, but maybe 23, 24. The bullpen is still bad.
1: All right, well, we kept this a family-friendly segment and didn't ask about Mitch Haniger. I hope he's doing okay, though. <laughs> no,
3: I, I don't need the stomach ache that comes with describing what led to all of that. But basically, one pitch led to three surgeries and sidetracked the yeah. guy's career.
1: Is yeah. there a, a timeline for Wear him? Wear your or...
3: cup, kids. That's what i got to say. Oh, yeah. gosh.
1: Will we see him this season, do you expect? No. Or? no. no. Okay. I don't think so. All right. Well, we have enjoyed talking to you and, and hearing some crowd noise, even if it was fake piped in crowd noise. We still got a little <laughs> taste of it. So you can find Ryan on Twitter at his name, Ryan Divish. You can hear him on the Extra Innings podcast at the Seattle Times. And of course, you can read him at the Seattle Times. Thank you very much, Ryan.
3: Thanks, guys. Take it easy.
1: Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks to our guests and thanks to you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Kevin, Andrew McNamee, James Burns, Jeremy Reynolds and Nathaniel Kane. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms, and you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com group effectively wild. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with a non-preview episode followed by our final preview episode soon.
0: Well, oh.